My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by William Wheelwright. Uh, William is a writer, an anonymous poster. Um, he um, microblogs on Twitter at Plowman's Folly. <laughs> and uh, he is um, a sort of expert on, um, on a, a more embodied existence, uh, on a more connected existence, essentially on, on farming. You're a farmer as well. Isn't that right, William? That's right, yes. Welcome, welcome. This is, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, this used to be um, the profession for maybe at least seventy or eighty percent of the people in, uh, you know, the surroundings of the place where I live now. Maybe even like a hundred years ago, now being a farmer is something quite specialized. You know, it's it's something very far away that some some people do in very very big places you know you need to you need to be part of some sort of megacorp to be producing eggs or meat or whatever uh, or at least that's that's what I'm led to believe because I've also been I think maybe libertarian pilled for a while thinking that okay to produce the most the cheapest meat and eggs and dairy you need to have economies of scale you need to build the mega farm the you know seven million acres of corn or something like that. And that is going to give you the cheapest, most available corn. You're going to, you know, be using labor arbitrage, doing it in a cheap area. You're going to be using, uh, you know, you're going to be saving money on your fertilizers, all this type of stuff. Um, you, I don't think, agree with this position. You're not libertarian built in that direction. So what what's wrong with this perspective? I mean, isn't, you know, having more food, cheaper food um, abundance, isn't that what we're looking for? Um, yes, abundance is what we're looking for. Before I answer that question, I just want to uh, compliment Romania's uh, beautiful agricultural tradition. Uh, one thing uh, that uh, one of the really cool things that they do is they'll take, uh, you know, spruce trees or other other conifer coniferous trees that have what they call a whorl pattern of, of branches. So they have, you know, every year puts on, say, five more branches. And if you have a 20 year old tree, you have, you know, 30 feet of uh, kind of whorls, like little little uh, levels where essentially what they'll do is they'll take them and take them out to the hay field and uh, the men will start making the hay and the women will climb to the top of the, uh, these trees that have been, you know, that don't have any uh, needles on them anymore. And over the course of the day, the men with these long pitchforks will pitch the hay up to the women who are standing on the, like 30 feet in the air. And, you know, there are these very beautiful kind of conical shapes, uh, haystack shapes that uh, are unique to uh, somewhere in Romania, I understand. I mean, there's pictures yeah, everywhere. Of That's really interesting. I to me, they're just so common that I didn't even realize that this was like a unique thing. This is just mm -hmm. like haystacks. <laughs> I did see that they were like mechanically, you know, made perfectly into perfect cubes in the West. But I thought that's just like, oh, they moved on from the from the tree haystacks to the cubes. <laughs> so I didn't know it was a, it was different anywhere else. Um, but yeah, they're everywhere here. Like the second you drive out, like I don't know five minutes out, outside of the city, you'll, you'll very likely encounter some, some of those haystacks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't know about the women though, like the the climbing up. I to be honest, I've never seen one in progress. I just seen the, the finished result. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's cool. Anyway, so uh, to answer your question, I the scale question is very is very easy uh, or very interesting, um, and I think that you know it's my 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 instinctual response to it is to point out the um, undeniable fact that the the scale of nature. Uh, actually dwarfs the scale of industry. Um, if you think of just the massive, uh, e- you know, especially in grassland ecosystems, just these massive expanses that, um, you know, would uh, would would cause an industrialist to to go pale, you know, um, in terms of trying to figure out how to manage the whole thing. And so, um, well, I'm not against I'm not against large scale. I'm pro, uh, you know, very large scale. I think what we need to focus on is, and you mentioned you you alluded to this talking about labor. Um, focus on we, what we need to focus on is the what Wendell Berry calls the eyes to acre ratio, and uh, you also said you know at, um, not so long ago seventy to eighty percent of the people in your area were were farmers, and that's true generally you know throughout the West throughout the world. It's even higher in some places, of course. And um, I think you know what um, what the problem is is that agriculture has become you know unhuman. And that that has let, had you know that's the cause of the effect of the fact that you know our food is is bad for us now. Our food is is not food. It's it's unfood. It's something else. It's something that actually makes us you know fat and unhealthy rather than um, fit and and you know uh, and capable of doing things um, <laughs> doing things physically. So which of course it's that's what it's supposed to be. So I think that um, what what needs to be done isn't isn't necessarily like this sort of um, you know kind of a homesteader pilled uh trad thing that sometimes gets advocated for of you know uh small holders although i do think there's a place for that in some contexts but in terms of like production agriculture i just i think that we need to um start thinking about ways to reverse what has been now a 200 plus year process of getting people out of agriculture which has really been uh you know um the the most identifiable and consistent trend in farming since uh, the beginning of the industrial revolution the, this all started with uh, the invention of the threshing machine um which you can is very interesting history in england where it was invented uh, it was the first kind of like you know labor reducing machine threshing is is the separation of the wheat from the chaff um with small grains and it took before this machine was invented it took you know whole villages of people to actually get this job done in a timely manner uh essentially you take those bundles of wheat that you'll see in, in old painting stuff and just smack them against like a, a stone floor or something over and over again until the wheat and the chaff separate. And this machine essentially, it has, you know, two rubber rollers that you send it through and it, it just rubs the things apart. And so it does the work of 50 men. Um, and, you know, basically people rioted when these things came out and went around and got drunk and, you know, destroyed them and uh, just were angry because uh, they saw what was coming and that they would end up in a factory somewhere, which, so many of them did uh, shortly thereafter, uh, and you know, from the invention of other machines as well. Anyway, uh, so that's that's the beginning of of a trend of you know urbanization, and um, and you know that obviously has a human cost in terms of making people's lives miserable, uh, which we're obviously dealing with now, and you know, very often in the discourse on our side of Twitter, talking about you know um, the the longhouse, etc. And um, but also it makes the food. Um, uh, inedible and and you know uh, di- and <laughs> disease causing so so it's yeah. bad in both ways worst of both worlds 
Yeah, it's interesting. I I, uh, have an anecdote. I think it was about the thrashing machine and uh, the origin of the word saboteur. Have you, mm-hmm. Do you know this? Like the, no, no. The, the French peasants used to throw their, sub, their, their like uh, clogs into the machine to, to ruin it yeah. uh, during some, some of these kind of industri- early industrial revolution riots. And mm-hmm. they were sabotaging the machine with their sabots, like the, the shoes themselves. So that's uh, <laughs> an interesting uh, origin, etymology. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, one of, there's a very beautiful... Um, there's a very beautiful English like folk song called uh, the Dalesman, the Dalesman's Litany, um, which is about kind of this whole story of kind of, um, you know, people essentially being who have been, who have been, you know, in certain areas on certain land for many, many generations uh, during that time period, having no other choice than to go and, you know, work in, um, uh, you know, factory type conditions um, and how, you know, <laughs> how like terrible that was and in the in the song eventually the the couple uh that is being sung about um you know gets like kind of like gets through the to the end of their life and is able to return to the countryside and they're like happy again but you know there's not like much much hope for for future generations um so yeah you you outline kind of a, a kind of a clear tension that exists usually within these discussions and you know there's kind of this whole um new movement with you know like you said, you know, kind of homesteady, it's a relatively LARPy adoption of kind of agriculture as almost like a, just a lifestyle choice. Um, and I, to be honest, I agree with that. I think LARPing certain things even, you know, because to be honest, not many people can hand down these things. Like my grandfather was, you know, lived his life in subsistence agriculture when he was a younger man and um, he didn't miss it. Um, he didn't miss like the physical toil and he didn't miss the, um, I don't know, the, the fact that, you know, this was literally subsistence agriculture. So there wasn't any like industrial fertilizer. There, there were, there were harsh seasons and there was, were famines and like, this is, you know, Eastern Europe and like before the red army came, like there's, you know, this is like almost medieval levels of, you know, poverty. Uh, so they were very much kind of at the, at the mercy of the elements, but he every almost every night he dreamt of his horses. He had this whole thing, and um, he, he was is interesting because he was still kind of there. He was still kind of connected to to the land, even after you know it was made impossible by the communists to actually um, you know be in agriculture. At least for for his family, it was made impossible because they were what um, they were considered a kabut, which is like more wealthy peasants. So they had to be expropriated and he had to be forced into um, different, I mean, he wasn't in like forced labor, but he only had a certain type of employment that he could, you know, engage in. So he became a miner because that was one of the limited set of things that he could do. Um, But still, you know, this kind of this, this haunting dream of his horses that he cared about more than anything in the world kept creeping up like he would talk about them every day that's probably one of the only uh memories that i have from from my grandfather i mean this isn't this doesn't isn't making much of a point but i feel like there's something um something that is lost and something that is to be gained even if you're not 
you know, going all out or taking on the full burden of, you know, your own subsistence through your homesteading garden. Like I've got like a, an herb garden and I make a few edibles here in my little, you know, semi-urban garden. Uh, but it's just, it's such an important thing to me and for, for my child and for, you know, the people in my, my household that even if, you know, it's, even if I didn't take anything out of the garden, just a simple act of, of keeping it is something, it connects me to something that, I really don't feel connected to in, in any other uh, part of my life. It just, you know, it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. What it is, I don't know, but I feel like it's worthwhile, even if it's not, you know, yeah, if it's not feeding the world. Yeah, I've, I've, caused, I've caused some controversy on, on Twitter by, by saying, you know, people who, um, the sort of prepper types who, um, it, which are certainly prevalent in America. I'm not sure how prevalent they are in Europe. It seems to be kind of a more uh, American phenomenon, but people who essentially go into it with their priorities, in my opinion, mixed up, which is is to say that they go into it saying, you know, I've got to be self-reliant and um, grow everything for my family that we need in order to survive the apocalypse, et cetera. Uh, obviously, that, <laughs> that's, that has its own problems in terms of like the sort of, uh, what would you say, a political, like, you know, um, probabilities that are likely to actually, you know, take place in such a scenario. Um, and, but it's also spiritually, I think, um, misguided because it's not about, you know, this, the, the, the reason that you would want to live that lifestyle is not, be, is not so that you can like not be reliant on any other human being, um, outside of yourself and your family, but it's that, you know, there is a deep, um, a deep spiritual enrichment in just being, as you had described, uh, connected to, uh, you know, creation connected to life. And I think the animal thing with the horses, um, is so important. Obviously this gets sort of, um, transmuted and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, in, in a deformed way through like, you know, you see these, uh, uh, urban, urban, um, you know, late mid thirties females getting their, uh, like, you know, uh, 15 pound, uh, canine, canine specimens. Uh, but you know, like, um, the, the, the human connection to animals, um, is, is something that is, yeah, just a, a wildly underappreciated loss. Um, and I think, you know, we see this on, on Twitter a lot with people, you know, the various accounts that just post like fun videos of, you know, fun clips of like animals, you know, orangutans and, but also, yeah, horses and, and sheep and cows and pigs, you know, it's, it's very important for us to, um, to, to be around these, these beasts. I think, um, there's a very, there's, you know, um, it's a bit normie of me, but, uh, James Harriet has, uh, have you, have you ever read his, his, uh, this English, uh, English, um, well, actually he was Scottish, uh, but he, he, he was a veterinarian who practiced in, in Yorkshire and, um, just was a very gifted writer as well and wrote um, autobiographical uh, little short stories, many books worth of them, uh, of, you know, encounters he had with these people, these, you know, Dale's, Dale's people who, um, who, you know, were just very, very deep, deeply rooted uh, farmers uh, of various sorts. And one of the most moving of those was this one about how um, one of these, I think a particularly older guy who he was, uh, who he was doing a call for, um, for some, for, you know, a cow or something. Um, he, you know, was hanging out after having, you know, healed the cow and, uh, the, the farmer was very appreciative. So he brought him to this very beautiful glade, like, you know, kind of tucked away on the other side of his farm. And it was where he was keeping his, 
you know, it's just like this heavenly spot and uh, with a river running through it. And uh, there was just this one little barn and it was where he was keeping his retired horses, like four of them. So they were already, they weren't doing any work for him, but he gave them like the nicest spot with, you know, the most beautiful scenery and best grass and stuff. And it's just, you know, obviously uh, you were talking about libertarians and like economic maximalizers. Uh, it's, this would be insanity to someone like that. But I think to someone like your grandfather, um, you know, there's just something much deeper there, especially the connection with animals. And I, and, you know, as you may have noted, um, the, the, uh, you know, I, I really, I'm, I'm more of a, an animal, you know, I, I have a garden and I like to grow plants and mushrooms too, but, um, you know, for me, it's all about, uh, you know, being, being with the herd, you know? Uh, so <laughs> I think yeah. that's a lot of, a lot of inspiration from. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is something to, um, kind of res- respecting animals at that level. Cause at the moment, kind of, I feel like our, our mainstream culture has two, um, two strangely dis- disembodied ways of dealing with animals. You know, they're either kind of, you know, sacred where you have soup like veganism, you know, you don't touch them, you know, it's, it's completely taken out of the, you know, the, the, the food chain there, you know, they've got qualia and, you know, whatever rationalist stuff <laughs> that people talk about re- regarding animals, or there's kind of this, you know, you will eat them, but you don't want to know anything about the process, you know, like factory farming, just like they put them in a box, grow the chicken in a bottle, you know, cut its head off when when it's a certain age old, but don't tell me about it. And you just kind of have these slabs of meat, which is really interesting because like in Romania, like the, the name of the animal is the name of the meat. You don't have the cow beef you know, poultry, chicken stuff, you know, it's like, it's, it's very direct. Like there's no, um, you know, we don't have specific names for the slabs of meat. It's all just the animals as the meat. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's, it, I feel like it's a little bit, just even like culturally a bit more close to the fact that, you know, literally, I mean, my parents used to slaughter pigs when I was uh, younger. It's something that we did around the holidays. It was something that the whole family participated in. It was really scary. I used to hide in the basement because, you know, the, the sounds are pretty gruesome, I have to admit. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff around um, kind of that, that closeness. So there must, you know, there must be like a, a middle way where we understand that, okay, we're also part of the food chain, but these animals, um, you know, they also need a certain amount of respect, but somehow I feel like no one's really getting that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also the, to the extent to which we do connect to like live animals through mainly through dogs and cats. Um, you know, I think, uh, BAP, BAP has a famous, uh, thing about the border collie in the, in the city apartment, uh, making him want to destroy entire nations, uh, you know, <laughs> something like this. Uh, I agree with that completely. I think, um, you know, not that you actually see very many border collies in, in urban places, but, um, but it's mostly, as I was saying, these little, uh, little rat like things, but, um, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, that, you know, the, the do- dogs and cats, uh, up until, you know, 70 years ago existed for specific purposes. Um, you know, uh, obviously for dogs in particular, they've served a wide variety of purposes, but, and cats, obviously, um, you know, if you, you can't, you can't store grain in before like plastic and concrete without cats. Uh, it's just not really a, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna starve in the winter. So, um, and like, I think, and so we sort of, we've, we've segregated even those animals from like the purposes that they've been bred for, um, in a kind of, in a way that, uh, is, is of a piece of, of the same pattern. Um, 
with like <laughs> the rest of what's been going on in the world in terms of uh you know life and its and its essences um so um i think i think also yeah like or when you mentioned the thing about um like meat and as you know as a guy who sold a lot of meat um i think that people people really like the the unknowledge like the the ability to not know where something came from actually is something that people are willing to pay for it's like a quantifiable um you know percentage of the value of like a chicken breast um is uh not having to think about it in the grocery store and it's a very difficult thing to surmount because you'll get people um like coming up to you at the farmer's market or whatever and saying oh it's like wonderful uh, local farm you know uh like let me like you know i'll get some you know <laughs> like this actually happens it's like you know they'll want to see the products and then they'll and then they'll realize like oh wait like you did you kill this and you know um <laughs> sometimes yes sometimes no but uh like i'll be like yes and then you know it's like the the interest is is gone uh it's very interesting and people people like realize you know they're sort of thrust into rea- back into reality uh and in this you know like we're kind of already in the metaverse in terms of our food consumption uh as far as the like there's there's uh, another reality that is totally obscured and um forgotten about um behind the scenes and people are living in sort of this bliss <laughs> in terms of in terms of uh how you know where it actually comes from and what you know what this material actually is and represents and once was um and so yeah, it uh, it's you know death and and dealing with um, dealing with the fact that you know um, I th- I think it ultimately just yeah it, it's it's um, an alienation from like mortality writ large not not even necessarily one's own mortality but I think you know something interesting about about COVID too in terms of why it's driven people so mad is is that all of a sudden you know living where, whereas we've lived in a society for so long where um, you know, death is sort of this, uh, this like thing that may, may show up one day. And we rarely, we rarely, at least in, you know, in the West, um, we rarely have to deal with like a loved one dying or someone dying unexpectedly, something like that. And, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's something like COVID that, um, you know, freaks everybody out, um, and makes everybody have to think about this. And, you know, it's, there's, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of societal, um, you know, there's, 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 uh, that, that has, that has a certain value for people. Um, and it, it allows things to operate in a certain way and that may not be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I completely agree. I feel like the, the through line through, uh, you know, a, a lot of the insanity that, you know, you comment on and a lot of, uh, the people in uh, this thing of ours comment on is this denial of death. It really is kind of the, the, the core of it. And I feel like it's, because the you know the denial of death guarantees that um you know you can have kind of this you know the the homunculus continues the 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 choice making entity behind the eyes is still there and you know the it, it's in, inextinguishable and you can continue to consent to a lot of weird stuff if you if you you know the consumer continues like you don't you don't want to be spooking your consumer with things like death you know it's it's unpleasant don't tell them about that that's that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it definitely spooks them. You know, their eyes kind of wide and and um, and yeah. And but I and I posted about this and um, you know, this it's it's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. Um, I, I recommend I always recommend especially to um to my Catholic followers uh this this uh, uh to follow a Farmstead Meatsmith, who's a um uh, a, a couple with their family who are 
uh, butchers and traditional Catholics and just have a very uh, beautiful way of describing and explaining um, what they do and the sort of kind of philosophical um, extensions and implications of it. And, um, you know, one, one of, uh, and so I've, I've been inspired by them and, and borrowed a lot from them uh, in terms of talking about, you know, it's, it's very difficult for modern people, especially given their relationship to like pets and things like that, that I was talking about before to um, wrap their minds around the idea that you let a farmer could like love, truly love and care for his animals and, and, you know, want like will the best for them. Um, while at the same time, like planning on killing them at the end of a certain period of time. And, you know, just, it's, <laughs> it's very difficult to describe, but I just, I just think, you know, having experienced it myself over and over again, um, it's, uh, it's absolutely, um, you know, within, within the realm, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely like somehow becomes possible, uh, in, in reality. Um, and it's a very strange and, and beautiful thing to, to, you know, um, I mean, for one thing with, with certain, with certain kinds of animals like poultry, you know, you're, you're constantly saving them from death, uh, you know, at, at the hands of various of the weather of predators of, of, you know, with turkeys, for example, you know, they'll, they'll find, they, they constantly are finding new creative ways to, to commit suicide, uh, you know, <laughs> just like jumping off things and, you know, whatever, uh, getting, you know, st- sitting out in the rain when, when, you know, there's, there's shelter right next door and they don't realize it, but you know, that sort of thing. And they get pneumonia. Um, but you know, uh, with, even with animals that, that aren't, that aren't susceptible to, <laughs> to, to dying, uh, to due to random causes, um, like, like pigs and cows and stuff, you know, you, um, I think what you realize, I think, and I think I posted about this, it's coming back to me now, the post that I made that um, provoked some interest. It was a while ago, but um, one thing that you realize is that they don't exist in time the way that human beings do. Um, They don't, uh, like, they don't experience, I don't think they experience their days as, like, successive, you know? Um, Especially not once they've reached maturity. Um, I think that for them, every, you know, it's not a matter of, of days and weeks and years and months, it's a matter of, of breaths, you know, uh, like they just want to survive to the next breath and that's their goal. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and time and death and time are, are closely related, obviously. Um, and the, and, and also the fact that the, and so, so when you, you know, you, when you domesticate an animal, you're taking on responsibility for its death because the alternative is that it essentially, you know, reaches some incredibly old age, uh, under your, under your care. And, um, rots from the inside out, which is what happens. And it's not pretty. I've seen it happen um, when I was younger. And, uh, you know, so you have to dispatch them before they reach that that point out of mercy. And so the question is, what, at what point are you going to dispatch them? And that becomes interesting because, you know, once they've reached a certain a certain maturity, to them, I don't think it, it makes any difference. Um, I think that, I don't think that like a longer life is different from a shorter life to a sheep. Uh, you know, just, I don't think that they experience time having observed them all my life. Um, I don't think that animals experience time the way that humans do. And it's something about like the human condition, you know, original sin or something like that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, that, that makes it that way, but that's, that's my opinion. Yeah. That, that's kind of just a part of this, this whole tragic dimension of human life that, um, we're, we're tried to, I mean, all of the cultural forces around us are trying are trying to make us forget about. Um, it's, you know, the fact that we're all going to die, that it's probably going to be gruesome, you know, that it might be earlier or, you know, sooner rather than later. 
um, all of this stuff, you know, is just completely put by the wayside. And um, the idea that, you know, a, a, a cow might live three years instead of, I don't know, five or six or whatever, maybe, I don't know, 10 years if, you know, like you said, <laughs> they, they end up decaying from the inside out. Um, you know, how do you quantify this? It's it's one of those things that, you know, we have one measure. It's um, lifespan. You know, we want to maximize lifespan. And if you get to 100, then, you know, you've 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 cashed out all your chips. And even if, you know, you you feel absolutely horrible for the last 20 years of your life, at least you've you've maxed out. You've you've uh, become one of the good statistics. Uh, um, yeah, I, I just it's it's I feel like it's very hard for for people to understand that in some cases, uh, long life um, might be, you know, not as you know, not preferable to a shorter, um, you know, just just different, more focused existence. Mm, the calamity of such long life. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and it's 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 a strange thing. Like we've never really we we're almost up to like Abrahamic levels of of longevity, <laughs> but you know it's it's really hard to to actually take care of people at that age. Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially I don't know if you've seen this video. It's gone around a couple times on Twitter, but there's a very just heartbreaking video of kind of a boomer looking woman who someone you know a sort of TikTok type personality approaches in a store to ask her like you know. Um, like uh, I forget what you know. It's it's part of a larger series of clips of this interviewer approaching people, and you know, basically, it just like takes a turn for the worse because she's like, "Yeah, I don't have anybody. Like, I don't have a family. I never had kids. Like, I was, you know, in like the seventies when I was, you know, in my twenties and thirties. It just people were worried about like overpopulation, and I just wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. And she's like, "Well, I have like music, you know, and like <laughs> it, uh, I, the point that I'm making is just." You know, I don't know. It just it just makes me uh, makes me uh, very melancholic. But um, uh, to see something like that. But uh, I think I think that you know, in it, you know, we're gonna not only right now we're dealing with like the fact that uh, not even boomers yet, but like greatest generation uh, uh, generation people are like living indefinitely, um, and then it'll be boomers, and then but then we're gonna have to deal with the fact that like a lot of like. Gen Z people who have, who don't even have like families to live for. Like I have, uh, thank God, a, a grandmother is still alive and she has uh, two great grandchildren. And like, um, you know, I think that she literally has the will to live like because of that. Uh, like she said that. <laughs> and, um, but like, we're not going to have that for a lot of people, um, you know, in 20 or 30 years. And it's going to get very weird, I think. Um, because yeah, like, you know, we've just, we've been, I don't know, all these, all these things are connected. The fact of death, the fact of mortality, the, like what, like human, the, the human conundrum, the human condition, original sin, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, and, and, um, you know, all, all like they're related and they don't, they don't like, um, they don't operate, they don't influence life independently of each other. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I don't know. It's going to um, it's going to just get weirder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing that video as well, and just thinking, you know, this this is like this woman was infected by an idea at one point. It just took her over and just consumed her. You know, just left her a husk. And then I think at one point she said, like, "Oh, what have you been up to?" And she was like, "Oh, I've gotten more involved in politics." 
And it's like, yeah, that's just an extension of the same like demonic thing that just kind of scooped out your insides and, you know, threw them to the wind. Uh, and now, you know, it's still kind of, you know, eating off of you like that parasitic mushroom on that ant. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it was just really, really sad. And I can, I'm sure she's not, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the GOP politician uh, supporting person. Yeah, you can see it in her, you can see it in her face and like the way she folds her hands, you know, that she's she's like uh she's tortured by it. I, that's you know, that's my read. Um and it's and you know she has to cope with it. She's been coping with it. So she's like learned how to um how to like, you know, deal with it like day by day. And but it's just, you know, it's like you can't you can't take it back uh you know i think it's interesting it, it applies i don't know that's that's something that uh actually um connects connects back to the farm thing which is that this this notion of permanence and um or, or not, permanence is maybe misleading what i mean is is you know undertaking projects and decisions that you can't really undo that easily obviously in her in this woman's case you can't undo it at all um, at least not, not yet <laughs> with, with, uh, you know, at our current, our current level of technological advancement. But, um, you know, I think a lot of the problem, the problem with, you know, where we're at in farming and where we're at in society is that we've, we've sort of, we've, we've invested ourselves on a certain track that, um, that, that, you know, happens to be one that's very difficult to get off of. Um, and that, you know, any attempt to get off of kind of just like reinforces the, <laughs> the gravitational pull. And so, what kind of part of what we're dealing with and part of what people are sort of uh memeing solutions for uh many of which are not are are not viable um you know on on twitter and elsewhere uh is is how to you know veer in one direction or the other and um yeah it's it's just uh i think yeah this notion of of um flexibility and and being able to you know avoiding the kinds of decisions that um entrap you um <laughs> it's it's amazing like you know just for example in with with uh relatives who are who are of a, a certain generation uh involved in in managing the same land that i'm managing the, their their kind of eagerness to like undertake projects and decisions that like cannot be undone <laughs> like without great cost and i'm just like well what if we don't want that in like five years you know um or 10 years and it's the same exact situation as that woman it's like there's there's just like this faith this kind of faith in um in uh you know things things will work out i think you know like what we think <laughs> like this random idea that we had is going to be a good idea and we'll still think that in five years or ten years um it seems to be a very boomer boomer mentality and it, it, it in my personal life drives me a little nuts but yeah yeah, I mean, the the boomers had the advantage that, you know, the, the Adam Smith adage that uh, there's a, a lot of ruin in a nation was actually the case then. But I feel like at, at this point, um, the, the ruins kind of run out, or at least it's, you know, it's starting to to dwindle, you know, as the, the pressure you can put on a system that worked well with all the, the, the crazy boomer ideas um, is starting to, starting to kind of uh, evaporate. I've um, I've seen, I think it was a relatively recent thread of yours um, about grass-fed dairy, um, which, you know, you kind of 
pinpoint as key to a sustainable agricultural system. And I thought it was really interesting because um, like, I mean, I keep relating this to, to, to what I see happening here. Like dairy really isn't um, that that big here. You kind of have, you know, a few milk, milk cattle and you use, you know, we also use sheep for milk. It's just a kind of different ecosystem. And I, I wonder what, why is dairy kind of the, kind of the, the cornerstone to this uh, kind of sustainable ecosystem? So the reason is that um, grass, perennial grass uh, in the vast majority of the world's land is the most sustainable thing to grow. Uh, and that's because it, well, most of the world's land is grassland, or at least was before it was desertified. Um, and you can, you can just refer to, to, you know, um, the historians of the ancient world for, uh, to, to find out which places used to be grassland, you know, much of North Africa, uh, obviously the quote unquote fertile crescent, um, was once fertile. Now it is desert. Um, and, uh, this is due to, um, what, what ecologists call unknown processes, uh, but you know, in reality, it's just due to uh, you know bad bad management and um, and tillage and uh, bad management of livestock. Basically, are the two reasons. But um, the the point is to say that grass is what grows in most of the world, and agriculture uh, at its best is is not you know a superimposition of some uh, you know preordained committee um, committee driven plan on top of uh, some on top of what is naturally, you know, on a given acreage, uh, it is ensconced and, um, and directly participates in the ecological processes that are going on, um, that, that, that preexist, um, and that are native to that, to that spot. And so grass, uh, as, as the sort of, you know, <laughs> the, the, the thing that the, 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 you know, basic, you know, building block of the ecosystems of most of the world's land um, is, is, is by far the most sustainable thing that we can base a nation or a community's caloric needs off of. But the problem is that human beings can't digest grass. Um, and so we need to, we need to run it through um, some other, some other means in order to make it into something that we can eat. And the way to do that is through herbivores. Um, and so once you've realized that uh, you need herbivores, you can, you can, you know, this applies to, to any herbivore. This can be, uh, cows, sheep, camels, goats, reindeer, wildebeest, bison, you know, this is, this, it, the list goes on. Um, any, any ruminant, uh, which is just a, a you know, a mammal, uh, that has a rumen that has, uh, uh, you know, a, a stomach that can, that can digest, uh, roughage and, and turn it into, to energy and, and, you know, meat and, and milk and leather and wool, et cetera. You can say uh, that maybe you want maybe once you've got that you want you're trying to figure out what product you know once you're there you, in terms of things that you can eat you're sort of choosing between uh, meat and milk and um, just from a sort of calories per acre perspective milk is is by far much more productive than meat um, you you know if if you say say that you were doing I don't have the numbers off the top of my head but I can give you a rough a rough uh, approximation say that you were uh, if you wanted to to produce the same amount of calories of, of grass fed beef as you know grass fed cow's milk on you know a thousand acres, it would take um, many many more head of cattle. You you would just be producing. Or sorry, sorry. The limit the limit isn't your your goal of, of caloric production. It's it's how many acres you have. It would take um, you you would if you had a hundred acres, you would be producing way fewer calories of beef 
than you were than you would be of milk if you were um and obviously one of the one of the uh, byproducts of of dairy is veal and of you know sheep's dairy is is you know uh, suckling lamb or uh, whatever you want to call it and it doesn't have to be veal you can you can raise it you can raise it out to beef but uh, or to a, a full-grown lamb if you have uh, the means to do that or the, the land to do that but um the point is just that calorically dairy is much more productive on sort of it, 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 the conversion is much more efficient and so it doesn't have to be dairy but um you know i i recommend dairy because it just you know from a caloric perspective takes a lot fewer acres to to feed the same amount of people um uh, you know from if the point if the idea is to convert grass into human digestible calories then dairy is is the way to go so that's why i advocate for for grass-fed dairy yeah, that's that's really interesting because here you essentially only have grass-fed dairy. Um, I mean, there's probably you know more industrial stuff that I'm not aware of, but uh, that's kind of traditionally been the case. Um, but um, you don't really have beef; like people don't really um, eat cattle. It's just essentially they just keep them for for dairy purposes. And mm-hmm. it might be kind of like an ancestral intuition that you know you don't want to be eating your uh, your dairy cow, and also. It it does seem to me that there are different species, like the, the cattle that you raise for beef tend to be a bit different to the ones that you raise for milk. Isn't that the case? Um, yeah, it has become that way in in recent years, in recent decades. But traditionally, uh, and the same goes for, you know, poultry, like egg laying chickens versus meat chickens. You know, th- this distinction is a, is a modern phenomenon. Um, and it's just, you know, a... Uh, um, yeah, it's it's like sort of a post-war uh, as these things became industrialized and everything became much more siloed and specific and uh, specialized. Um, different things were raised for different purposes and bred for those purposes. But uh, many many breeds, um, you know, that that are currently beef breeds could, you know, in a <laughs> in a dire situation be used as, as dairy breeds. It's just that you know the 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 two or three like exceptional breeds for dairy. That, that produced an amazing amount of milk, Holsteins and Jerseys and Guernseys, um, cows like this, uh, became the, the dairy industry's darlings. And then Angus and Herefords became the beef industry's um, darlings. So and the same, same thing has happened in every, in every species. So um, yes, uh, but, but like you can, you can still eat dairy cows for beef and you can, you know, it probably wouldn't be, make economic sense to, um, to like milk an Angus cow. <laughs> um, she'd probably also kick you, but, um, it's still possible. I mean, she obviously produces milk. She has to have, she, she, you know, she raises a cat for every year for six months. So, um, so that's, uh, or more, or, uh, you know, depends on the farmer, how long they, they take to wean them, but, um, six months is pretty normal. Um, yeah. So those, those things have, have, have become kind of bifurcated, but they're, it's, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, but of course, you know, they've come up with ways to like accelerate the, you know, genetic, a genetic, uh, evolutionary process. Uh, so, so there are, yeah, it, you know, it's amazing. It's insane how much milk, like a Holstein produces. It's like ridiculous amount of milk per day. So. Yeah. I think, was it like a, a Charolais beef or something like that? There is this kind of mm-hmm. type of cattle that just looks insane, <laughs> insanely jacked. Yeah. The bulls. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah they're God. very lean. They're very, yeah. The, 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 the French, you know, it's the, the British breeds are, are the fatty breeds, uh, uh, the Devons and, and, and the Bradfords and so on. Um, and, and, uh, Dexters, which are Irish, but, uh, uh you know, <laughs> I don't know how racist we want to get here. Uh, <laughs> as racist as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, the, um, 
yeah, so uh, so you know, t- typically the, the British Isle uh, uh, breeds, and this goes for pork too, um, are are fattier, and you know, and then when you get into France and and it, and Italian breeds, uh, um, they they tend to be leaner and um, you know more suited to the, you know, they don't need all that fat to to stay warm in the the cold and rain cold rainy climates of of the British Isles. Um, which is interesting, you know, and it, it just like it, uh, the notion of a Sunday roast versus, uh, you know, just turning everything into prosciutto or brisola, you know, uh, <laughs> these, these have, these things have um, cultural implications. Yeah. It's really interesting. I never, I never realized that. So uh, that, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. That's very mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that you've uh, just alluded to, you've, you haven't uh, made a, a big thing out of it, but uh, uh, I think you commented a little bit on what's been going on in uh, certain U.S. cities. I mean, there's been a few like high profile, like really nutty, aggressive situations. <laughs> I mean, that probably are more visible kind of in, in the distant right than in, in other places because the yeah. media doesn't really report on them. Um, but I mean, what what do you make of this? I mean, to, to me, I've just kind of been like scrolling through what's been going on the last few days. And it just seemed like there's a bit of a, almost like a, you know, like a narco tyranny is reaching like a fever pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's also, you know, a bit of a, a filter bubble, but this is like, I don't know, quite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. I mean, Tucker, Tucker reaches uh, millions and millions of people. So um, when Tucker's talking about something, then, uh, then it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say it's like firmly in the mainstream, but, you know, as you said, like uh, this, this recent thing in Memphis, uh, I, I guarantee you that if you were to ask a, uh, the average, you know, um, even moderate, um, like left wing American voter, they would have no idea that, that it even happened. Um, it just due to the the reality of like the media um situation um but yeah what do i make of it i mean you know i think it's it's insane uh it's insane what um even i think that i think that it's like you know there's this sort of this narrative and and tucker basically i watched tucker's clip on on the the eliza fletcher thing and you know there's this narrative that kind of from like the riots of 1968 after um martin luther king was assassinated etc um and 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 uh bobby kennedy that like, you know, white flight basically happened because of that. And then all these cities just like went to hell. And that's definitely true to some extent. But like a lot of these cities also were like basically fine, you know, up until like five, six, seven, eight years ago. <laughs> they had, uh, you know, um, certain certain cities, you know, you, you, you that I grew up visiting, you know, they were very orderly places. They weren't necessarily like it's not like they had had some sort of like neoclassical renaissance and everything was like beautiful and like these colorized videos of you know the women were all walking around in uh, in like long dresses and stuff like that and uh whatever but you know they were you didn't have to um like when you rode on the subway there wasn't a uh, a guarantee that some insane schizophrenic person was going to be like uh terrorizing everyone you know like there's like a one in five chance of that happening or something like you'd have to be ready for that like every five train rides um you know, so um, it, it seems to me that, uh, yeah, like like we were talking about with the clip of that that particular woman. Um, you know, there's a certain uh, there's a certain uh, like <laughs> ideology um, uh, belief system that is that has the qualities of a virus um, that uh, leads people to 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 advocate for policies that um, make life hell for the majority of people. 
And um, for whatever reason, um, you know, and, and, and yeah, there's, there's just this, uh, this obsession that probably, that probably really has its, has its, um, you know, is only allowed to, to proliferate because of the like boredom and the comfort and the like lack of, lack of excitement in the lives of, you know, the average American voter, um, particularly in, in, you know, urban areas that, you know, they need, they need some cause and this is, and, and, you know, certain, certain actors have, have, uh, capitalized and taken advantage of, of that, uh, consciously or subconsciously that, that, you know, particular psychological, uh, collective reality. And, you know, it just, like, you can see its fruits right now. It's like a real thing. Um, it's not that it's, you know, I think obviously, like you were saying, I think, you know, if, if, if you just lived on Twitter and didn't actually visit any American cities, um, you would, you would have, uh, you know, an inflated, um, perception of, of what's going on. But, you know, I have friends in, in many different American cities and enormous friends who, uh, who are definitely getting, getting fed up with, uh, this type of thing. And, you know, that, that obviously what we're talking about was an extreme example. Um, but there's micro versions of that happening all the time. Um, yeah. All over the yeah, world. Right. Like I've, yeah. I've never yeah. lived in like Baltimore or Chicago or something like that, but I have lived in East London and it was enough. <laughs> it was enough for me to draw some conclusions. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I, I have a very like well thought out thing, but to me, even this kind of, this um, ties into like the, that denial of death type of thinking um, because there's, there's just, there's just something about, um, you know, when you have a, a system that imposes order, you kind of have to look at this finite hierarchy of life, you know, you kind of have to internalize that. And then that kind of cuts off the kind of this, this utopian open-endedness that a lot of these policies feed into. Like, for example, you know, you can't outlaw abortion because what if, you know, you know, what if there's some crazy, you know, like a 10 year old gets raped and, you know, there's this, these crazy edge cases that, you know, you can't impose order because what if, you know, there's like a nightmare scenario in that weird space like that liminal space outside of the the order thing where you kind of have these these costs imposed by order we cannot um we cannot swallow these costs imposed by order at all um and in a way that was the case with with uh with with covid as well like you know even even covid in a way was kind of in a way an, an excess of order to to combat that but uh it's you know it was essentially like the denial of death turned into policy so i don't know it, it just feels like that like really people just cannot even in, think about what what it would mean to um to absorb these these sometimes much smaller costs imposed by order like you know the death penalty another big example in this case you know there, there's serious, um, you know, like mass incarceration, another thing that's, that's, you know, one of, one of pretty much the only things that actually worked in the nineties. Like there, there are all these things that, you know, people just don't, cannot even imagine swallowing these costs anymore. It's just beyond the pale. You know, you'd rather have like anarchy, uh, yeah. you know, just not, you don't even want to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I completely agree with you that it's, it's, you know, of a piece with, with the death thing that, you know, there's, it's basically this um, like wild optimism about, you know, reality and human nature. Um, it, you know, in, in the, the in, on the one hand that like, you know, we can, we can transcend death in some way. Uh, basically it's like their ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate like logical conclusion of, of their, you know, not just for humans, but for, for animals and, uh, and, 
and so on. And then on the other hand, that like, you know, um, people can, you know, be rehabilitated and, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously there are some people that can be rehabilitated, but that like anybody can be rehabilitated and, um, and that, you know, like we can, we can, you know, like this kind of Rousseauian, uh, take on human nature that, uh, that it's, it's, uh, it's something societal that it's, that is corrupt, that is causing these, these types of behaviors. And that if we were, if we, if we simply need to like give them even more, uh, leeway, <laughs> you know, exactly. and, uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, um, I, I don't think that it's, and, and it's, I think what it comes down to is this, um, drastically misplaced and i think in many cases genuine but nevertheless drastically misplaced sense of mercy um the people look at um you know the downtrodden and the like inner city poor and um they feel sorry for them and and they attribute you know when when they behave in ways that are criminal or 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 whatever um they attribute that behavior to um to some other to some other cause and I think that, um, but for me, um, you know, my, my life experiences have led me to, to feel, to believe that it's not merciful to, to accept, um, that kind of behavior. Um, and I think actually, uh, one of my favorite ever takes was on w one of your shows with Mary Harrington, where she was, this was during the, uh, I think it was during the, the heat of the, um, Antifa, uh, like Portland attacking the federal courthouse in in Portland, uh, riots. And, uh, Mary had this uh, brilliant take, which was that, you know, these people are, are crying out for authority, crying out for, to be punished, basically, <laughs> this kind of like Foucaultian take, you know, um, and I think it's just absolutely true. Like, and you know, it's, it's, it's humorous to imagine them, you know, and you would, you would see, we would see like at night, we would see these clips of like, you know, the area around this courthouse in flames and all these insane people in, in black block, you know, trying to tear down this fence. And, uh, and then like the next day it would be the mayor of Portland being like, uh, like, we just need to understand each other better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, like we need to have a dialogue. Um, and, but like, you know, you can just imagine the sort of like the, the, the Antifa people in their, in their heart of hearts being like, Oh, like all we want is to be thrown in prison. You know, like that's what we're, we're desperate. We're desperate for something, um, uh, paternal, uh, and, and, you know, authoritative to, to tell us what to do. Um, and I think, I think, you know, um, along those same lines, um, with, you know, I, I think that like the increase in criminality, the wantonness, and there was literally just today, this guy in also in Memphis going around shooting people and, and live streaming it on Facebook. I don't know if you saw that, but, um, like, you know, that, that's another example of just like, it's going to escalate more and more until somebody comes along and imposes authority, imposes, um, you know, says like, this is unacceptable because that's what's, you know, and like, especially in America, I don't know what it's like where you grew up, but you know, that was the sort of like guiding principle of parenting and like teaching and stuff. It was that like, you know, we need to basically essentially like yield to the will of, you know, the sub, the, the subject, uh, and are like, that's how to, that's like the way to rule basically. And in reality, that just produces chaos. And, um, and the people, the subjects know that, uh, and they are through their behavior, I think subconsciously actually crying out for, um, the authority to be imposed upon them. And I think, um, you know, uh, it's not merciful to like have 
this is kind of a normally conservative point, but it's not, you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations or whatever, but this is on an even low, that, that phrase came from like, you know, SAT testing or, or not SAT, but standardized testing or whatever in the, you know, no child left behind in the 2000s. This, you know, they wanted there to be standardized testing. So they said there should be a standard for everybody, but like even on an even more basic level than that, just, you know, not committing crimes and not, and, you know, participating in society in a, in a way that, you know, is, is uh, considered acceptable. Um, these are not, uh, it's, it's actually uh, more merciful to impose expectations on some level, um, in my opinion. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people silently agree with that. Yeah, I think, I think once you're a parent, you kind of see what the like end result is of the, the, this, you know, the, the, the line of argument that, you know, you just need to kind of cherish the, the, uh, the, I don't know, choosing agent and people because, you know, your kids will, will, will kill themselves swiftly mm -hmm. if you don't, if you don't, you know, impose order. They even look to you to impose order. They're going to test yeah. boundaries. They, you know, that's, it's essentially when you raise a child, you can see that they have an order module. And if you don't exercise that order framework around them um they it's it's a lack you know they'll they'll suddenly start crying they're anxious you know you you need to have boundaries with your children um and you need to have boundaries socially because there's this kind of like it's it's all based on this egalitarian assumption which essentially you know fuels consumerism fuels globalism fuels all these ideas of you know the, the you know we can we can all kumbaya together yeah you know in, in certain ways we can but in in other ways you know there's there's a clear inequality in in every sort of human arrangement that you can imagine and we just can't stomach it so we we fill our heads with these um i don't know illusions of uh of equality. And then you obviously reach these points where, oh, you know, the only problem, the only difference between you and, I don't know, the, the guy who I don't know, rape murdered some woman, uh, you know, last night is that, you know, he's just missing education. You know, no one stood him down and told him like, don't rape, don't murder. Mm -hmm. It's not nice. You know, no, there really are, you know, some other fundamental issue, issues there that, you know, you can't remedy through a workshop, but that's just, inadmissible in, uh, in, in the way, you know, we're, we're taught to think. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why should we care? Like what, who cares what the reason is, you know, uh, like we, what the, 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 um, the like presupposition of that statement that, um, that, you know, it's because he didn't get an education or whatever is that, you know, there's some, there's some level on which we should accept that in society. And, you know, obviously that's, that's the most extreme thing most people can imagine, or maybe not the most, but it's one of like the top five most extreme things people can imagine. And that's why this particular story has gotten a lot of attention. But like, you know, even, you know, the, even, you know, the sort of like a broken windows policy that uh, Giuliani had in, in New York uh, and Bloomberg really uh, carried on into the 2000s was this notion that like, in order to prevent that kind of behavior, which you know, according to, you can talk to people who lived in New York in the 70s and 80s and ask them what it was like. Uh, but um, in order to prevent that kind of like insane, anarchic, uh, you know, hellish chaos, what you need is to like clamp down very aggressively on the tiny stuff, like the littering and the, um, you know, like in a Singaporean way. And, you know, stop and frisk was essentially the manifestation of this that got, that is no longer, like, I forget how it legally got shut down, but um, you know, like how much, what are we willing to tolerate and, and, you know, 
um, and to what extent, you know, what volume and like, uh, seemingly the answer from, from, um, a certain cadre is like, you know, a lot. <laughs> um, and you know, I think that I have, I have faith and I was, you know, just talking about this with some friends that, uh, like these sorts of, these sorts of instances in America, um, you know, it's just, uh, people, people just aren't, I, I think the people have gotten, you know, people remember and memory and, um, and, uh, and, you know, knowledge of history, but, but specifically just living memory, uh, is, is the, is a safeguard against, you know, this psyoping that like, like what you just described, like, oh, like, you know, we have to, we have to accept it. Like, you know, um, they're, <laughs> they, uh, just didn't, yeah, didn't get nobody, nobody taught them. Um, you know, yeah. uh, that's, that's not going to be, uh, you know, I don't think people will put up with that. You have to be like extremely mind wormed to be victimized personally and still like harbor these feelings. And just statistically speaking, by the way everything's ratcheting up, um, avoiding being victimized personally is getting harder and harder. Like, you know, the neighborhood where I used to live, you know, you know, every few days, yeah, there's a stabbing, there's this and that, you know, I, I personally wasn't stabbed luckily but you know i i know people who have and uh it's you know at, at one point you you know things ratchet up to a point where um it's it's pretty hard to square with the workshop based approach and with the oh we just need more social services and if you're even just slightly still attached to reality you see that okay something's got to give here and then you might be looking into you know what's going on and then you might find our corner of Twitter <laughs> and then God help you. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I mean, that, that seems to be the trajectory for a lot of people. Yeah. 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 It's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a strange time to be living in, but I guess, you know, I think, you know, what, what, what can't go on won't go on. And that's, you know, mm. that's the feeling that I have about many things, unfortunately also good things. Um, like, I don't know, the electrical grid, which is another, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, man. I don't know. You guys seem to be a little bit more, um, protected from what is going on in Europe, but what is going on in Europe is, is messed up. It's very, very complicated. And, um, you know, Romania is not even the worst, but like if, for example, we, we have a, a family company and we do like some sort of I don't know, metal finishings and stuff like that. It's very energy intensive and it's still barely holding on. Uh, but if we were in Germany, we would have had to close down shop like weeks ago. It would have just like impossible, shut off everything. And there's, you know, machinery that if you stop it, you can't turn it back on. It's just the way that that thing works. Um, you know, and so many people like that, like, you know, hundreds, thousands of companies in Germany, just like, you know, and the government's like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe you turn it on next year, you know, we'll see, we'll see how we feel about that. It's just, uh, even even the, the the weakest pretense that democracy is in the interest of the people, or that is it is even a democracy, um, you know, is is being lost under all this shouting about our democracies, you know, protecting democracy and all this stuff. Like it's it's such a travesty, really. Yeah. It's very important that uh, trans people have rights in Ukraine, so you'll have to of just course. accept the sacrifice. Yeah. Of course. Um, yeah. 
Oh man. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, uh, as you know, people have gotten used to to being completely white pilled after listening to this uh, <laughs> this podcast. Um, I want to ask you about um, your subversive recommendation. Do you have oh, a yes. thinker, writer, living dead uh, agriculturist <laughs> that you want to recommend to people? Yeah. Well, uh, oh, so I was actually thinking about this because I knew this question was coming. And I think, um, you know, some some guests have uh, have offered uh, highly schizoid uh, recommendations, uh, but um, and, and others, uh, others quite normal. I enjoyed uh, James Poulos's recommendation, by the way. Uh, for example, I won't, I won't, I dare not mention the name, but, uh, the, um, yes, uh, people can refer to that episode. Um, but, um, I think, um, for agricultural stuff, I, I very much, um, for the, for people who enjoy, for autists who enjoy, um, schizophrenic and, um, extremely like, <laughs> uh, abstracted thinking, there's a, a book by the name of an Australian uh, by the name of uh, by the name of Water for Every Farm, written by uh, a fellow named P. A. Yeomans, an Australian. Uh, I don't know if you can still get it. I got it, you know, maybe ten years ago, and um, it really, uh, if you can understand it, it really. And we didn't get into this, Alex, but um, the water, the water thing, um, is something that I'm very passionate about and have posted about a lot. So if people, people look up, go to my go to my Twitter page and, and look up, you know, water management or just water. Um, or yeah, um, you'll, or ponds, um, you will, you will find interesting threads about that. Um, and, uh, but, and a lot of it is inspired, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes at one or two degrees, but by this fellow PA Yeomans who had an incredible oasis farm in a, in Australia, which of course is a, is basically a giant desert. Um, <laughs> other than, other than very, very, um, you know, select coastal strips. Um, but, uh, the the um, ability to manage water, the leveraging of technology and uh, the energy, the great abundance of energy that we have at this moment in history to um, build water infrastructure uh, in a way that, you know, can last for a long time and um, can can really open up and uh, and create abundance, uh, abundance of productivity in lands that, you know, um, otherwise would take would take many, many centuries or, or millennia to to regenerate. Um, that's that's a great book uh, to check out if you're interested in that sort of thing. And otherwise, I always um, you know have to recommend uh, the poetry and uh, and philosophy of T. S. Eliot. Yeah. Nice, excellent, excellent. I don't think we've had T. S. Eliot recommended. Yeah, I think that's a a really good one. Yeah, I I I mean, unsurprisingly, I had never heard of the water management book, but please do check it out. I'm I might you know look it up. There are sources there are places on the internet where you might find books that are out of print this is the only way i get them because i'm in romania and even just ordering normal print books takes forever and they're usually not available so yeah well if you i will say real fast that if uh if you look up just sort of relatively um you know normie uh agricultural regenerative agriculture uh figures like joel salatin and uh greg judy greg um um gabe brown uh, uh, Darren Doherty, who's also an Australian. These guys have all uh, been been influenced uh, by by the thought of PA Yeomans in terms of managing their farms with regards to water. So uh, those guys are a way to get uh, secondhand, uh, sort of more <laughs> more uh, you know normal person friendly information about about uh, water management. So uh, and you know of course uh, water is the limiting factor. So nothing nothing else matters unless you, if you don't have water. So uh, it's pretty important. 
Excellent. Another thing to worry about. <laughs> so, yeah, I, thank you so much, William. This was, this was really good. Um, I want to point people to your Twitter, at Plowman's Folly. Please do follow William. Uh, he's a fountain of insight about agriculture and much, much more. Um, and, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 